Okay, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Romans. I think we're going to be done with Romans 8 today and return to Hebrews, but we'll see. I, uh, I always reserve the right for God to change my mind. So Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 18, again, if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to futility, I mean the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day as we consider this promised revelation of the glorious liberty that's been prepared for us and promised unto us and has begun to give us an earnest even now. God, we ask that you give us grace to understand and strengthen and and gird up our minds and our loins and our bodies, Father, for the sake of the fight that remains. God, let none of us coast to the end, but let us all run with perseverance and with grace and with determination the course set before us, that Christ would receive glory more from the end than he has from the beginning, and that our lives would declare that with the fullness of all that we are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the hope that is ours in Christ, we've been talking about it since after Thanksgiving, and it's important that we understand that this hope is something that is one of those things that the scripture refers to as a now and a not yet. It's been given to us, it's ours as a guarantee, but it's also not quite fulfilled. It's not something that we've seen the completion of it. And this fact translates into how we see the liberty that has been given. The promise of the greater liberty that awaits, even as we try to sort out some semblance of sense regarding the abiding corruption that still besets us. We dare not give in to the pressure of the age to conform to its ideals, its opinions, or its agendas. And we face constant assault upon the truth of our God. As followers of Christ, we cannot see clearly And stand on truth if we have compromised ourselves regarding sin. Regarding the righteousness that we've been called to live. We know that we fail. And we dare to hope that this day will be more triumphant than the last. And that the promised final victory will surely come as promised and when promised. 
And we hope all of these things knowing that the things that we endure are endured because God is God. He's on his throne. He has organized the world according to his eternal plan, according to his eternal purpose, and according to the things that he determined to do before he ever said, let there be. All of these things are true. And yet we still stand in this place where we know the hope that one day we'll be free of sin and still live in the day when sin has a power over us. And how we sort out that balance and how we look forward to the promised liberty that's ours in Christ and how we live it and and fight for every inch that we can today. That's what makes the life of Christ in us shine. Beloved, understand this. Before we go any further, this is important. The world lives without hope. And the world lives without any understanding that there is freedom from guilt. That there is freedom from absolute destruction. The world lives only anticipating that bad things will happen. And even the people that do their best to try and remain positive are always undone and overborne when bad things happen in their lives. Because they don't know the flavor of hope. That should not be us. We are a people who are filled with hope and filled with purpose and filled with power because we serve the God of hope. And He has planted His hope in us. And even when things don't line out the way we think they should, the way we want them to, the way we desire, even just at the fundamental level of our own sanctification, when you look at your own life and the abiding sin that still remains in you, do not allow it to undo you. Do not allow it to set you adrift and cut you off. Instead, recognize the fact that what God has promised, God will deliver. And He's shown us that because He's given us His Word. We we read this morning in Matthew all of these different prophecies. And so why did the wise men come? Because God promised that they would. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because God promised that that's where He would be. And why did Herod do what he did and, and kill the, the babies in Bethlehem and its surrounding regions because it was foretold that he would. And there are so many things just in that one little passage that show that God made his promises and God fulfilled his promises and he did everything that he set out to do. And he did it all so that Christ would be born according to his purpose. This is the story of Scripture. Every place you look in Scripture, there is prophecy, there is promise, there is the, the Word of God in the Old Testament foretelling Christ and all that He would do, and there is the Word of God in the New Testament giving us the fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament, and then there remain for us the promises of what God still holds out in front. And the absolute veracity with which God fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament in the coming of Christ and in the things that have happened to date, should give us confidence that whether we can see exactly how or not, his past revelation teaches us that he is to be believed. He has shown us his faithfulness over and over and over again. There is not one promise that God has ever made which is not answered in Christ. And there is not one promise that God has ever made which is not fulfilled either now or yet to be. And every single one of them will be fulfilled. We know this. 
We know this because he has continued to be faithful. And so far, the things that he has said, this will surely come to pass at such and such a time, none of them have failed. There is not one promise that God has made that anybody could ever point to and say, you lied, you didn't fulfill it, you didn't keep your word. So why is it that we constantly face in our own souls and in our own minds, we of all people, why is it that we so constantly face this threat that somehow God's not going to keep his promises? That somehow God is not going to fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill. That it fills us with despair. It fills us with angst. It fills us with anxiety and it undoes us. It knocks us loose from our moorings and from the foundations of our faith. Why does this happen? Well, the problem is not with God. (laughs) The problem is with us. It's because we take our eyes off of who he is and off of all that he has done and off of all of his word and off of all of his promises, off of his faithfulness. And instead, we focus our attention on our circumstances and on the things that we're facing and on the things that we can't understand and on the things that aren't really ours to understand. Beloved, at the outset, we need to recognize the truth that God has secrets He's allowed to have secrets. He's God. First of all, by right of his own nature and right of his own authority as creator, he is under no obligation to tell you anything. Amen? Amen. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, it says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has the right to say, look, even if I told you, you wouldn't understand. Why? Because it's true. Even the things that we think we understand, we don't understand. We can look at the world around us and recognize the mechanics of how things actually work. We can take mathematical formula and determine the reality of gravitational force and how it interacts in orbital mechanics. And we can look at things and say, yes, we can now launch a rocket to the moon. We can put a rocket on Mars. We can send telescopes out into space and do all these things. And yet there is not one person in all of the earth who can actually tell you at its fundamental root why any of it functions the way that it does. We can observe the phenomena, and we can draw our conclusions. But to get down to the core of even expressing the most basic things of this creation in which we live, we're clueless. And things that we took for granted, and things that we knew were true, don't worry. In a hundred years, they'll figure out that they were completely wrong and they'll come up with a completely new way of expressing things that in a hundred years after that, if we're still here, will be proven wrong yet again. Less than a hundred years ago, Einsteinian theory of relativity was the bomb. Guess what everybody's on to now? Quantum mechanics, which is completely opposite of Einsteinian relativity. And everybody says Einstein was wrong. Oh yeah? Can you prove it? They're trying. They can't. When they reach the point where they think they can and think that they have, somebody else will come along and show them that quantum mechanics is completely full of hooey. It's just the way it works. And we need to recognize this because if we don't, we get very full of ourselves. 
instead of understanding that God has secrets. In fact, the scripture speaks to God's secrets in Deuteronomy, way back at the beginning. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God has secrets. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, so that we may do all the words of this law. So what does God say? God says, my secrets are mine, but I'm going to give you the things that you need to know so that you might do them, so that you might teach them to your children, so that you might obey them. I'm going to give you everything that you need to know so that you can enter into a relationship with me and function within the realm of the world that I created for you to enjoy. That is our job. That is what belongs to us. The secret things, they belong to God. Don't concern yourself with trying to understand everything that God has done. And certainly do not allow your inability to understand to keep you from believing what God has told you plainly to do. Does that make sense? But we so often allow our inability to understand to keep us from actually just obeying the bits that we do understand. It's sort of like when you've got a young child at home and you're out in the front yard with the young child and the young child is running towards the street and you say to the young child with a little bit of desperation in your voice, stop! You don't want to have to explain to them why. You just want them to obey. Later, you can tell them why. There was a truck coming up the road and I didn't want you to be splattered all over the highway. There was a dog that was going to bite you. There was a hole you were about to, whatever it might be. Or simply, I didn't want you that far away from me. You shouldn't need to explain that. You simply want them to obey. Does God not have the same right with us? If he's God, absolutely he does. He has the right to simply tell us what he expects us to do and call us to do it and hold us accountable for the obedience that we give or don't. That's his right as creator. And he tells us that plainly in Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the law and the testimony, those are ours. That's what God tells us to obey. He gives it to us plainly, and he gives it to us plainly. Now, at the end, we know that we fail at this readily. Amen? Even if we set ourselves to obey the law of God, we have to acknowledge that we fail at it. And we don't just fail at it a little. <laughs> we fail at it spectacularly. We fail at it with, a, with an absolute abandon of all common sense more often than not. We fail at it even knowing that the things that we're doing are our own undoing. We fail at it knowing that the seeds that we're sowing will be our destruction. But still, we sow them. God gives us his word as a caution. He gives us his word as instruction. He gives us his word as a guide. He gives us his word as something for us to understand so that we do not destroy ourselves. But he also gives us his word as a comfort to us to remind us that in the places where we fail, he bears the burden that we cannot. 
You've heard me give the statement on many occasions that biblical masculinity is defined as bearing the burden for those who are under your authority, as bearing the burden for those who cannot. That's how God defines manhood. It is responsibility and authority put into practice so that those who are under our care do not have to bear more than they are capable of. Do you know where authority comes from? God himself. So does it not stand to reason that God, who is the giver of authority, operates with that same authority in mind? That when God says to us, the secret things belong to me, at least part of what he's saying is, you can't bear this, so I will. You can't fulfill this, you're not capable of it, so I will. You can't understand this, so I will hold it for you. So in the end, he loves us and carries what he knows that we cannot. In knowledge, in responsibility, in pain, in suffering, in everything. And somebody's going to say to me, well, there's still suffering and pain in my life. Sure there is. But I promise you, no matter how ruined your life is, by your own actions, I might add, there is not one minuscule part of your life which has come close to the pain and suffering that Christ endured on your behalf. Amen. He bears what you cannot bear. He endures what you cannot endure. He provides what you cannot provide. So that in the end, the promises that he has made to you are fulfilled in Christ. This is what our God has done. And this demonstrates to us that everything he does can be trusted. He is ultimately trustworthy. He fulfills everything he says, and we spend our time worrying about the things that we can't get our heads around instead of just dwelling in the things that are plainly revealed. This is our obstinacy. This is our foolishness. This is our rebellion made flesh. And it's the constant theme of our lives and the constant theme of everything that we do. We turn away from God, instead focusing on that which he tells us, ignore, don't worry about the secret things, and and we give ourselves to those things that are not ours to worry about, while we ignore completely those things that are ours to worry about and those things that are in front of us to do. It's perverse. (laughs) But it's humankind. It is the nature of fallen man. Now, what the scripture tells us is that God has given to us not only his past promises and his present revelation, but he has also given to us future promises that we can know because of his past faithfulness will actually be fulfilled. He gives us parts and pieces so that we might move towards what we will become. His revelation is partial, but it is sufficient. It is enough. He gives us all that is needful for us to actually get. His secrets are his own to keep or to reveal, and the glimpses that he grants us are far too glorious for us to gaze at for long, or we would go utterly blind with the glory. But it's enough to light the way. So I want to think with you this morning about how this faithfulness of God translates into the promise of the liberty that he holds out in front of us. 
And I'm going to think with you about it in the context of the future liberty, the the far-off future liberty from sin that will happen when we are finally in His presence. And I want to think with you about it in the context of our present liberty from sin, which is more possible than most of us give it credit for. We can be freer from sin than we are. I'll go so far as to say that. We can absolutely be freer from sin than we are today, in practice and in application. Okay? All right. So let's talk first of all about the future liberty. We have the promise of God that one day those who are found in Christ will be completely set free from the power of sin. Now, if your entire idea of why you want to be saved is wrapped up in avoiding hell, this might be a little bit strange for you to hear. But God is not primarily concerned with keeping you out of hell. That's not his primary motive. His primary motive should be stated instead in a positive direction. His primary concern is that you would be saved so that you might enjoy fellowship with him. Keeping you out of hell, that's the avoidance of pain. It is not the promised fulfillment. The promised fulfillment is not that you would avoid the punishment, but that the power of the thing that keeps you out of God's presence would be broken in you forever. Because ultimately, sin divides you from the presence of God. It was that which was sacrificed in the garden with the initial rebellion of Adam and Eve. The fellowship with God that was their birthright as creations that God made for himself. God made them for fellowship. He made them so that they might enjoy his presence. Now, don't mishear me. He didn't make them because he was lonely. Because God sat in the heavens and looked around and went, gee whiz, I'm bored. Let's make some people to play with. That wasn't why he created. He created so that the people who he created could enjoy him because he is that good. He created because we need him. And he created us so that we might delight in him. So that he could bless us with his presence. So he could bless us with the fullness of who he is. And in the fall, that relationship, that fundamental reason for our existence was broken. Man was removed from the presence of God. That relationship was severed. God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. He was not speaking of physical death in the moment, although physical death entered into creation by that action. He was speaking of spiritual death which is best defined as separation from God and ultimately defined as eternal separation from God. God made us for himself. So if we are promised that one day we will be set free from the power of sin, then implied in that promise is one day we will be given the opportunity and the ability to be at one with our God, to enjoy fellowship with Him that will be unbroken and unending and completely uncompromised. Amen. In men's Bible study on Saturday mornings, we have been reading and studying for about a year and a half now through the book of James. 
And we're starting in chapter 4, which if you know me at all, is running through a text to be at a year and a half and be done with three chapters. I mean, we're at a sprint, let me tell you. Anyway, chapter 4, verse 1 says, why do wars and dissensions and quarrels arise among you? It's because your passions are at war within you. You, you want something that God has denied, or at least denied as of right now. And it creates conflict. It creates problems, not only between us as individuals, but it creates problems between us and God. When we want something that God has said no to, we allow that thing to grow beyond our momentary ability to comprehend it, and it turns us bitter. It turns us ugly. It, it, it sours us. When we can't get a hold of our desires and can't get a hold of our wants and can't get a hold of the things that we think we need or the things that we think we deserve or the things that we've set our sights on or set our goals upon or set our vision for, if we can't get a hold of that and recognize that God is governing our lives to bring about the very best end of our lives, then we're going to allow that disappointment to turn us against God. At the very least, it will manifest itself in turning us one against another. Which is why all too often, churches are filled with backbiting and gossip and infighting and ugly talk and all sorts of things that are divisive and vile and hateful in the sight of God. It's because we want something that we don't have. We desire something that God has said no to. Beloved, hear me. It dishonors our God if we give in to that at all. It dishonors our God if we participate in that in any way. It dishonors our God for us to even acknowledge that that's an okay response because it's not. What God tells us to do is to die to self and to surrender those things so that we are focused on him. And the battle to do that is the conflict with sin. So what God says to us is, one day, I promise you, I'm going to set you free from that thing's power to control you. One day, I'm going to set you free from that thing's power to corrupt your life and to corrupt your relationships, and to destroy your peace, and to destroy your contentment, and to destroy that part of you which is made for me. One day I'm going to set you free from all of that. This is his promise, and it goes so much further than simply keeping you out of hell. It means that your desires will not be for that which God has denied. Your desires will be for God. And your desires will be to fulfill and obey his law as your primary goal for all things because you will have grown to the point where you recognize that his law is right. You will have grown and matured to the point where you see the world with some clarity and acknowledge that the things that God has said are true, that they are just, That they are absolutely right in all things. Do you know what drives me mad about the insanity of the culture war over gender identities today? It's that it's completely disconnected from what is observable reality. And nobody's courageous enough to say that 
identifying as something that you're not is mental illness. It's broken in its fundamental reality because it is absolutely disconnected from what is observably true. That's just one little issue that I have enough understanding to see. Imagine how God must feel about our refusal to accept His law as good and right and proper. You get my point? When we see it in the world around us, it makes us crazy. We go, I can't understand why you can't see this. So imagine how God must feel. He made a world. He gave us a law that is absolute reality, that defines the reality of the law of the world that he gave us. And we walk around saying, I don't believe that's true. I believe I can do what I want to do. How maddening that must be. How infuriating. And yet God in his mercy has provided a way for us to be restored to him so that in the end, we will see the world in its right way. And understand things in a way that that brings us back into alignment with truth. We will want his truth. We will desire his truth. We will long for his fellowship. The supremacy of God will no longer be a conflict for us. There will be no part of us that says, now wait a minute God, I don't want you to be all that. I want some of the glory for me. There will be no part of us that declares that if anything says God did it and I had no part in it, I want nothing to do with it. There will be no part of us that is ever engaged in seeking the glory of anything but God himself. Because to do that is sin. For us to seek our own glory when God says the glory is his, it's sin. And the same thing applies to our understanding of the will of God. If God has decreed that a thing is to be, and it's evidenced by the fact that it's the way things are, then for us as Christians, we must recognize that this moment, although it does not preclude the possibility of change, that this moment is designed by God for some purpose that is good. Painful? Sure. Sorrow-filled? Absolutely. But designed by God for an eventual good purpose? If we're faithful, we have to confess the answer to that question is yes. Has God designed this day, this moment, the things that drive me mad, the things that I get upset about, has God designed this moment in time for something that will ultimately be for his glory and our good? Well, if I believe scripture, I have to believe that's true because scripture affirms that. So if scripture affirms that, then it shapes and changes the way that I am permitted by God's word to combat the evil that I see in the world around me. I have to combat it in a way that is faithful to him. I have to combat it in a way that is faithful to his word. I have to combat it with truth. I have to combat it by by speaking truth and by not being afraid. And I also have to combat it by not being angry for my own stuff. I can be angry for righteousness' sake, and I can be angry for the helpless and the weak and the defenseless, but I'm not permitted to be angry because somebody stepped on my toes or somebody offended me. I'm not permitted to get worked up and wrapped up because I got angry or I got hurt or I had my feelers stepped on or whatever other thing goes on. Let me put it to you in the language of the day. 
beloved, as Christians, you're not permitted to ever be triggered. What? Triggered. It's, it's the great catchphrase of the day. Oh, you triggered me. You said something that hurt me. It triggered me. Okay. That's not for us. We are not permitted to live that way. God calls us to rise above it. And he calls us to speak truth into the darkness because in the end, we will desire God's ways and God's ways alone. We will desire him above everything else. We will desire the manifestation of his glory and we will be granted everything that we desire. Did you ever think this through? If God promises that sin will no longer have a hold on you, not only will you not be permitted to sin, and you will not be permitted to desire sin because God will have transformed your life, but also every good thing that God tells us we are to desire will be our desire, and it will also be our possession. Beloved, that's liberty. To not only not want that which you should not have, but to be promised access to that which God has promised you, that's liberty. And that's glorious liberty. That is a liberty that is worth living for. That's a liberty that is worth dying for. We will have no more hungers that are not allowed. Isn't that a remarkable thought? That's what God holds for us. He holds for us a promise of his own presence. And we will be given raised bodies which are prepared to endure the glory of God. Now, I've talked about this a lot in the last six weeks or so, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I'm going to remind you that this means you will be made to know him. You will be made in a way to be able to see him and made in a way to be in his presence so that the glory of eternal worship and the unfiltered presence of the majesty of God does not destroy you. Because if God stepped into this room right now, we would all be completely wiped out by the effulgence of his glory. He's that glorious. He's that powerful. Even seeing God in a vision, when Isaiah saw him in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, woe is me, I'm undone. And literally the Hebrew says, I'm coming apart at the seams. I, I am undone. If he had any knowledge of molecular mechanics, he would have said, oh my goodness, my electrons are flying loose from their orbits. Because that's really what it was. I'm undone. Just a vision of God. Because we're not yet fit for his presence. This is what God had in mind when he told Moses, no, you can't see me. I'll give you a brief glimpse of my departing glory. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. That as my glory vanishes, I'll remove my hand for just a moment. And I'll let the departing aspect of my glory briefly, oh, so briefly. And for 40 days, Moses glowed. See, what God promises us is that we will be permitted and prepared for his presence without filter and without fear. God calls us and invites us into that promise. He invites us into that future. And he has prepared that future for us. This is the glorious liberty that we will know. And we will have everything that has been promised and which has now been delivered in part. Knowledge and vision are transformative. 
Scripture tells us that the more we know Him, the more we're made like Him. The more accurately we gaze upon Him, the more we are transformed by that. So if we are seeing God unfiltered and unkept away from us, how accurately will we be transformed into the image of Christ? Perfectly. Knowledge is ours for the taking. Truth is itself liberty. Purpose is empowering. And hope is sustaining. In the end, we will be made like unto the person of Christ. In everything that Jesus is, and in everything that Jesus did, we are promised that we will be made like unto him. And that's the purpose for this life. To prepare us for glory. To prepare us for that. To to go through the process of fitting us for heaven. For making us more like Jesus. And every day that we draw breath on the rock, we are supposed to be becoming more like unto him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be made like him because we will see him clearly. Everything he is, we will be. Everything he loves, we will love. Everything he delights in will be our joy. And everything that he does or thinks or says will be our delight. It's always humorous to me when somebody finds a new favorite thing, favorite author, favorite musician, favorite artist, favorite whatever. And they will go on and on and on to anybody who will listen about the wonders of this thing, whatever it is, because they're besotted by it. They're they're just taken with, oh, it's so wonderful, it's so cool, I, I wish you could see it the way I see it. And frankly, sometimes I wish I could because there's such joy and excitement in their voices. And, and sometimes when you hang out with people who get that sort of passionate about things, it makes you feel old and slow, like, ah, oh, I remember when I used to have passion. <laughs> but ultimately... We're all going to feel that way about Jesus. When we see him as he is, we're going to be besotted by his presence. And we can't think of anything else because he's that good. He's that wondrous. He's that glorious. He is that profoundly beautiful that nothing else compares to him. And part of our problem right here and right now is that we allow the desire for every other thing to distract us from him. We allow the desires that are given to simply give us a taste to become our consuming hunger. I love walking in the sunshine. But the scripture tells me that Christ is the light of the world. So if I somehow walk in the sunshine and miss that it's simply given to me as a taste of the glory of Christ, I have become an idolater. I have allowed that which was designed to draw me to him to separate me from him. And that is the essence of idolatry. God gave us a creation. He gave us birds and creatures and four-footed animals and and beauty all around us. 
And every single thing that God created screams his glory. But still in our blindness and ignorance and our willful rebellion against our God, we allow all of those things to become our passions and separate us from him. But in the day of his coming, when we are given the liberty that is promised, we will see him and be like unto him and we will be besotted with him and everything that he has given will come into a sharper focus because he is the reason for all of it. He is the reason why the sun exists. He is the reason why the stars are there. Everyone shouts his glory. Everything that's been given has been given to point us to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 17, says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you know that everything that Jesus knows you're going to be given access to? You're going to have full access to the complete knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God. There will be no questions that you cannot ask that he will not answer. There is no amount of time in all of eternity that will ever allow us to fully plumb the depths of all that God is and all that God knows. But there will be no part of him and no part of his will and no part of his purpose and no part of his glory that God is going to say to us in that day, no, you can't know that. Because everything will be made plain. The fullness of it will be revealed. And more than that, we'll actually be able to understand it. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. You have to put this into perspective. How does God know you? Well, He's God. So he knows you completely. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. He knows everything that you ever were, everything you ever will be, every thought you've ever had, every purpose your life has ever been, every action you've ever done, every single thing about you. And what the scripture promises us is that one day we will know even as we are known. There's no part of him that he's going to withhold from us. There's no part of him that he's going to reserve to not allow us to know him. We're called into his presence. We are being prepared for that presence. And more than that, everything that he possesses, he's promised to share with us. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our hearts that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I'm going to say that again. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Beloved, the promise is that everything that Christ has as his possession and everything that Christ purchased as his possession and everything that Christ earned by his actual righteousness is given and shared with us. He has given us full shares as co-heirs of his glory. And there's nothing you will ever do that will earn any of that. 
This is the promised liberty. This is the promised glory of what God is doing. But there is also a present manifestation. There is a present liberty. There is a liberty that has been given to us in this day and for this moment. Sanctification is that liberty. And it is promised. And the power of sin is broken in those who are in Christ. He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And he has prepared the things of this life as tools for that sanctification. Everything that God has put in your life, he has put in for the purpose of conforming you to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 make that very clear. That God has ordained that all of those that he chose will be conformed to the image of Christ. And because of that, everything that he does in this life is for your good. That's his promise. It doesn't matter whether you can see the good at the moment. It doesn't matter whether you can understand the good at this time. God has given it for your good and for his glory for the singular purpose of preparing you to look like Christ. Now, what that means is that sin has no power over you that you do not give to it. Okay? You say, that's quite a leap. I need some understanding. Look at Romans chapter 6. I want you to see this one. I'll wait. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. It's in the middle of a fairly complex argument that Paul is building, but this verse really shines. So Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says this. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Do you not know that who you present yourself to obey, you are that one's slave? Or look at 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 19. 2 Peter 2, starting at verse 19, reads this. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome... By him, he is also brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. The more we fight over sin in every sphere of our lives, the less power it has to destroy us. The more we fight against sin the less strength it has. The more we give into it, the more power it has. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are found in Him, washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are not by nature slaves of sin any longer. I'm going to say that again. If you are washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you are found in Christ Jesus, you are not by nature a slave of sin any longer. You can enslave yourself to sin by your actions. But you are not by nature a slave of sin any longer. You are now, according to Scripture, a slave of Jesus Christ and a slave of righteousness. So when you choose to sin, beloved, you choose willingly to give sin power in your life. 
You give it something that it no longer possessed by right. And you make for it room in your life to exert pressure upon you. Those who belong to Christ are on the road to crucifixion. You need to understand this. Jesus told people very plainly in his day, if you want to follow after me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. We are on the road to our own crucifixion. We are on the road to our own death. We are on the road to that which will end our struggle in this life. And part of that road looks like us dying to sin daily. Putting to death that which wants to regain control in our lives. When God makes you alive, he does not remove from you the old man. The old man still remains. Our calling, his command to us, is to kill the old man daily, to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, to put to death that part which remains in us, which longs to separate us from God. This is the exercise of our souls that strengthens us for the promise. This is the exercise of our souls that makes us fit as we walk in grace. And this is why it is so important that as Christians we recognize that God is calling us to live lives of holiness. There's no room in our life for sin to be coddled and nurtured and permitted. There will still be sin because the old man remains and he's sneaky. One day he'll be taken away. This is the day of the fight. This is the day of the conflict. This is the day in which we engage in warfare all the days that he grants to us life. Some days you're going to win. Some days you're going to lose. But let me put it to you as plainly as I can. When you give yourself willingly to sin, when you intentionally feed the old man by the things that you do and the things that you think and the things that you watch, the things that you engage in and the things that you actively take part in, You strengthen his war against your soul. And at the same time, you weaken the new man. You weaken that which can fight against sin. You can remember it like this. The one you feed will be the one who leads. The old man and the new man both dwelling within you. And the one you feed is the one who leads. What God calls us to do is to recognize that not only do we live in this day of conflict, but he has given to us the tools that we need to be victorious in this conflict. There's a tension here. And the tension exists between the inevitability of our sometimes falling and the reality that God promises us that we can be more successful at fighting against sin than we are. And truthfully, the reason why we fail at fighting against sin is because, well, we're lazy. It's hard work. It requires self-discipline. It requires us to deny the flesh. It requires us to fight against that which used to have some joy in our lives, which used to have some form of pleasure. But if you've walked with Christ at all, you will give confirmation to this statement. When you do give in to sin, it's not nearly as much fun as it used to be. Amen. 
Amen. Because it's not who you are anymore. It's not what you are anymore. You've been delivered by the power of Christ. You see, ultimately what Jesus came to do was to fulfill the law of God in righteous obedience to the commandments of God and to die in our place the death that we deserved. He came to do that so that he could give to us this inheritance of his own nature and his own righteousness. And God gives to us imputed righteousness, whereby he declares that we are righteous in his sight. But he also gives to us the righteousness of obedience as we walk in the Spirit and do the things that he tells us to do. He gives to us the righteousness of our own actions as we grow in grace and dwell in Christ and strengthen the new man. And the more you grow, the stronger you become, the easier it is to fight against sin. The more vigilant you walk in truth, the more you are going to enjoy victory. The more you set yourself to know and to believe and to understand and to grow in the grace of God's word, the better it becomes for you to try and walk in truth and and not give in to sin. So when you set yourself in that direction, you will expect to see more victory. And when you become lazy and tired and you don't read the Word anymore and you don't dwell in the Word anymore and you don't memorize the Word anymore and you don't fellowship with believers anymore and you don't do all the things that God tells you to do, what happens is the inner man begins to fade and shrivel and grow weak. And because there is no such thing as a vacuum... When you're ignoring the new man, you're doing something. And what you're doing is feeding the old man. Maybe you're not actively sinning, engaging in reckless living and doing all the things you used to do. But do you recognize the dichotomy of this life that there is nothing spiritually neutral? If you're not doing something that's promoting your spiritual life, what you're doing is diminishing it. That's just the truth of the world as God has made it to be. There is nothing that is spiritually neutral. Which is why the scripture tells us that do all that you do to the glory of God. John Piper famously says, you can drink orange juice to the glory of God. Jared and I had this conversation yesterday morning. You can do anything to the glory of God. It requires focus. It requires determination. It it requires you to set yourself to honor God. And by doing this, you will begin to enjoy liberty from the power of sin. You will begin to delight yourself in the things of God and begin to find that when sin comes at you, you say, no, I don't want that. I'm enjoying this. I am delighting in the fullness of my God. Picture with me, if you will, because food is a great thing for all of us. Picture me, with me, if you will, your favorite meal in all the world. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is that if somebody says to you, look, we're going out to eat, I'm buying, or I'm going to make it, or however it comes to pass, your favorite food in all the world. And it's sitting in front of you on a plate hot and steaming and gloriously wondrous, and you're about to take a bite, and then somebody comes up to you with a bowl full of the most detestable thing in the planet. Whatever that is to you, be it 
Brussels sprouts or I, I personally like Brussels sprouts, but whatever it might be. Is there any way in the world that you're going to willingly turn from this favorite meal and eat that which is vile and disgusting to you? No. But if you haven't eaten in months and I come to you with that food that would be your least favorite food on the planet and I say to you it's this or it's nothing, you know what I know? You're going to eat it like a dog. You're going to lick the bowl. You're going to knock it out of my hand and chew it off the floor. You're going to do whatever it takes to get something into your body. Because that's the nature of what it is to fight for life. And beloved, if you're starving your inner man, whatever vile thing you feed him, he's going to eat. Be careful. Be attentive to what you put into your soul what you put into your being because you're feeding one of those two natures you're feeding that which is for God or you're feeding that which is against him Romans 6 6 says this knowing this our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin God did that. And then he says to us, spend your days continuing that work. Put that old man off continually. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 20, says this, You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to your deceitful lusts. In other words, the things that you used to do Don't do them anymore. The things that you used to delight in, don't delight in them. Things that you used to fiddle about in your mind with, stop it. Put off the old things. Set aside those things which do not aim you towards Christ. Going on, verse 23 says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man that was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What this means is that God has given you a new set of desires and affections that are the very seed of Christ being formed in you. He's given you something which longs for him and hungers for him. And feeding the new man makes him stronger. This is why we're told to read the Bible and be transformed by the power of the scripture working in us. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Christ, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is your reasonable worship. This is your good and acceptable Worship so that you might prove that which is the will of God. Take in the scripture. Be transformed by the scripture. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 119 verse 45, I will walk at liberty for I seek after your precepts. The more I seek after God, the more liberty I walk in. The more I seek after your law, the more truth I walk in. The more I understand, the more I'm transformed by that. 
The more I take in the Word of God, the more I begin to see the world through the lens of Scripture. And the more it begins to manifest itself in my life so that I'm transformed by that. Does it strike anybody as strange that all the chaos in the culture around us began by people simply asserting that something was true that wasn't? Do you not understand that words and ideas have power to change things? What you take into your mind and what you take into your life and what you take into yourself, it has power to change things. Ultimately, what the scripture tells us is that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. He will turn away when we resist him. Beloved, I beg you, in the midst of this day and in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing, stop feeding that which is killing you. Stop giving room for that which is contrary to God. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. Stop. And I don't run around rummaging through your trash. I don't know what it is that God is pressing on you right now. But I know this. He's pressing something on every one of you. That's his business between you and him. But I beseech you by the mercies of God, whatever it is, obey him. Stop feeding that which is killing you. And start feeding that which will grow you in grace. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that as we are obedient to your commands as following after Christ, that you will fulfill your promises to us. I pray, God, that you would make yourself known in the most powerful and profound ways possible. That our lives would be reflecting the glory of the risen Christ. That our words would bring honor and glory to him. And that your kingdom would be advanced in this place. And I pray, God, that as you prepare us for that kind of liberty and that kind of righteousness and that kind of obedience, that you would be faithful to use us for the revival that we so desperately seek. God, let us be a part of the work that you're doing in this place. Do it quickly and do it powerfully, God. And do what is needful to transform hearts. But God, please, let us have a part in it that we would have this to lay at the feet of Christ as our worship when you bring us home. We ask all of this in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen.